0: Oh well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, the world we live in is a world where power matters. Now, just in case you don't believe me, I want to do something unusual. I want to take you back in time and location. Back in time to an era when big cities had their own physical metropolitan phone books. You know the ones I mean? Sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes more. Not digital, physical. And one day, when we lived in Perth during those days, I picked up my copy of the Perth Metropolitan Phone Book. I looked through it and I found it an amazing exercise. Let me tell you about it. In those days, the word power was spread over one full page of the phone book. Did you know, for example, that in Perth in those days, you could not only stay at the powerhouse boutique motor inn, you could also go to power personnel, power shop, power tech, Power Dental Studio, and Power Dinghy Racing Club. Oh, and the Power of One Academy, of course. And, you know, you could also get in Perth. Power beer, power buggies, power tools, and power exhaust systems, even. You can engage in all sorts of wonderful activities, such as power learning, power accounting, power coaching, and power management, and even power cleaning. And for your ailments in life, you could go to Solicitor A Power, Power and Jolly Power Chartered Accountants, Father John Power, and MJ and JM Power Transport Specialists, and Dr Linda Powers, the chiropractor. And while we're in the phone book, How many entries do you think there are in the Perth Metropolitan Phone Book for the name Weak? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. Do you notice the point? There is no Weakling's Body Shop. You cannot buy Weak beer anywhere in Perth. Now that quick survey of the phone book is very revealing, incredibly revealing. It shows us what we already know, doesn't it? We human beings despise weakness and vulnerability. We seek power, we engage in it, in an endless quest for it. We seek it in a variety of places, in muscle building, in weapons, in possessions, in money, in titles, degrees, in knowledge, in relationships. We human beings do not like weakness and insecurity. And power gives us security, recognition, influence. Power matters in our world, doesn't it? Friends, we live in a world fixated with power. And my view is that many Christians have imbibed the ideology of power. Well, this passage today is going to challenge us to be different. It's going to undermine our world. So let's have a look at it together and let's see what God is saying to us today in our world fixated with power. Now, let me remind you of where we are. You may remember that the book of Samuel opens, as we've seen these last few days, with the story of the barren woman, Hannah. In her culture, barrenness was a terrible affliction. So Hannah is deeply distressed. In her distress, she asks God for help. And God, as we saw, hears her prayer. He gives her a son, Samuel. And Samuel becomes a prophet who brings God's word to all Israel. In 1 Samuel 4, it's not an individual, but a nation who is distressed. Israel uh, is threatened by a technologically advanced nation. In chapter 4, the Philistines inflict their first victory over Israel. Israel's humiliated. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. But then, in chapters 5 and 6, God acts, and without the help of any army, any army of Israel, he humiliates the Philistines. In chapter 7, the Israelites call upon God to help. And they defeat the Philistines in battle. However, it's clear that Israel is still worried about those Philistines. They wonder about how what they might do in order to strengthen themselves. And they decide that the way ahead, politically and militarily, is to have a king. And so even though God had demonstrated that he was able to care for them, they ask him for a king. And God warns them that kings are not the answer. Nevertheless, he grants them their request. In the following chapters, the first king of Israel is appointed by God and he is tall and impressive. He's the sort of king that Israel thought that they needed to conquer the Philistine threat. But by chapter 13, he's looking a bit shaky in his kingship. He's fearful of the, in the face of the Philistine threat. He doesn't listen to the word of God from the prophet of God, Samuel. He's shown up by his son, Jonathan. Like Hannah before him, Jonathan sees the distress of God's people. In 1 Samuel 14, he puts his simple faith in the Lord. And the Lord acts. And before Jonathan, he defeats a far superior force, uh, forces of the Philistines. The Philistines are routed. But Saul stuffs up again with foolish oaths. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul makes yet another blunder. Samuel clearly instructs him to carry out holy war on the Amalekites. But Saul disobeys. And Samuel responds. He tells Saul that he has rejected the word of the Lord. Moreover, the Lord has rejected him from being king and will give his kingship to another. And that brings us to chapter 16. And we hear in chapter 16 of the other appointee. Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. And he looks at the son, sons of Jesse, and you know, he just does what I think we'd all do look for the sorts of things we'd look for in a king. What might they be? Height, maturity, and so on and so forth. You might have your own list. But God rebukes Samuel. After all, God doesn't look as humans look. So eventually, Samuel finds a small shepherd boy called David, the lad of the family. And God makes it clear that that's him. (laughs) He's the future king of Israel. And with that, we come to our passage for today. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 3, the armies of Israel face off against the Philistines again. And the Philistines have a different strategy this time uh, it's outlined in verses four to eleven. Have a look at it with me. They've chosen a champion, Goliath of Gath. Like Saul, he is tall. He wears heavy and impressive armor. He has a javelin and a scimitar of bron- or a scimitar of bronze strung across his shoulder. He carries a massive spear with an immense spearhead of iron. He cries out with this large voice challenging Israel to put forward their own champion. And verse 11 tells us that God's king and God's people are greatly afraid. They're impressed by bigness, you see, and so they cannot see their way out of such distress. Then we're introduced to another in Israel. Not a warrior, no. Verse 14 of our versions call him the youngest. But the Hebrew word, He's not young. It's the word for little or small. He's a short, cute lad, an errand boy. who's just running to and fro, helping others. He's got youthful enthusiasm, a lad. Anyway, in verses 23 to 31, this lad over here is a Philistine infantryman, and he's curious. But not only is he curious, he's affronted. After all, who, he says, is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David, this lad, is rebuked then by big brother, his big brother. But Saul hears of him and sends for him. And in verses 32 to 40, David comes into the presence of King Saul. Twice now we have heard of the fear of the Israelites. Once we've heard of the fear of Saul, but David rebukes such fear. The heart of Saul, he says, should not fail. For he, David, will be Israel's champion. He will fight the Philistine. And Saul is incredulous. Look at verse 33. He says, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. David counters. He tells stories of his exploits as a shepherd against lions and bears. Then for the first time in the story, David mentions the Lord. It's the Lord who saved him from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear. It's the Lord who will save him from the hand of this Philistine. Saul now mentions the Lord himself. He says, go, go, and may the Lord be with you. But Saul is not that confident that the Lord is enough. So he attempts to put his armor on David. And David will have none of it. Instead, he arms himself with the tools of a shepherd. Armed with a stick and some stones, he draws near to the Philistine. Now look at verses 41 to 53. The Philistine approaches and he ridicules David. He curses David in the name of his gods. It's an ominous note. David, you see, is the descendant of Abraham. And the Lord promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And he also promised that he, the Lord, will bless those who blessed him and the one who curses him, he will curse. What's more, it is Dagon, the God of the Philistines. Remember right back, perhaps uh, we haven't covered it, but if you go back in the early parts of Samuel, who falls on his face before the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 5. And it's the gods of the Philistines who are unable to protect their people from humiliation before the Lord in, then in chapter 6. This is the Lord whose name da- in whose name David has come. The name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. God dealt with Pharaoh so that they might know the Lord and that Israel might know the Lord. What will he now do in the face of such cursing? Well, the cursing Philistine draws near. The punishment for blaspheming Israel, do you remember what it is? Stoning. And so this blasphemer who defied God is struck by a stone. And as the God Dagon once fell on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, so the represent, his representative falls on his face before God's anointed. As Dagon was beheaded before the Ark of the Covenant, so his representative is beheaded by the Lord's anointed here. Do you remember Hannah's prophecy back in chapter 2? The Lord, oh, his adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed, his Christ. Then in verses 51 to 54, the Philistines are routed. And with that, we come to the closing verse of this chapter. Jonathan is heir to Saul's throne. But Jonathan has apparently been watching David. And Jonathan, we know to be a man of the Lord, clearly looks at the heart as the Lord does. Anyway, his robe, the robe that Jonathan wore, is probably a symbol of his future rule. And he, he takes it off. And he gives it to David. David. And Saul gives him authority over the army. So there's the story. Now you all know it. I've tried to point out some things that maybe you may not have noticed before. But it is one of the great pieces of world literature, isn't it? But it's also a profound piece of theological reflection. It's not just something you tell your kids. It's something you tell your kids about God. It's theology. Let's see if we can unravel some of what the writer is uh, telling us. And let me show you some things that maybe you've not noticed before. Or if you have, I can tie them together for you. The first sign of what he's saying has to do with being big. You see, both Israel and the Philistines in this story agreed on one point. They are agreed is big is better. (laughs) Big matters. The Philistines are addicted to power. You see it in their access to the technology for processing iron that is absent in Israel. You see it in their love of power. You see it in Israel as well. They are intimidated by the outward display of Goliath, big in stature, powerful weapons, mighty words, and Israel just shrinks back in fear and dismay. For Israel and for the Philistines, big is better. Contrast that with David. And his God. Chapter 16 tells us that God doesn't look at outward things. He looks at the heart. And he's found a man whose heart is stout and firm. He's not a big man. He's little in his family and he's little in stature. I love that. This chapter has emphasized this. He's a mere lad. He seems so innocent, doesn't he? And he's unembarrassed to ask the spiritual question. More than that, he seems to be the only person in Israel who's concerned with God rather than might and power. David seems to be the only one who thinks that the God of Hannah might be there on hand, ready to do something for his people. He doesn't need armor. He doesn't need might and power. All he needs is a mighty and powerful God. That's clear in verses 46 and 47. It is the Lord who will deliver It is he who will fight. The battle is the Lord's. That's the first hint as to how this chapter should be interpreted. But there is a second hint. The second hint comes in the constant use of words that have the connotations of defying, mocking, taunting. Goliath mocks or defies the armies of Israel, verse 10. Israel appears to simply just accept it. David, in contrast, will have nothing of it. Look at him in verse 26. To mock Israel is to mock the Lord. David makes that clear to Saul in verse 36. He makes it clear to Goliath in verse 45. What David is saying is that the Lord and his reputation matters. And he will put his life at risk for the Lord and his reputation. His name will be hallowed at all cost. I think that's why David goes out against the Philistines. If you really want what I think this passage is indicating. He goes out for God's glory and for God's name. He goes to stone this uncircumcised Philistine who has brought dishonor on the name of the Lord. That's the second hint. There's a third. It's found in the references to beasts. When David is before Saul, he makes the point that Goliath is just like a bear or a lion threatening a flock. But remember, what's David's occupation? He's a shepherd. And shepherds have an answer for beasts or lions that threaten God's sheep. Do away with them. Can you see what's going on here? When you put it all together, it ought not to surprise us. David is a man of insight. He's just like Hannah. He knows that God doesn't need kings or armies to raise up or bring down. Just as God could humiliate Dagon the God of the Philistines, in the absence of anyone, (laughs) so he can humiliate this so-called champion of the Philistines. David's just like Jonathan. David looks at this giant. He doesn't see a giant. No, he sees a beast harassing God's sheep. He's not mighty. He's not powerful. He's simply an uncircumcised, ignorant, blasphemer of the living God. And the Lord will deal with such people. So, David puts his trust in God that that is his will. Just as God sees David properly, I think David sees the world through God's eyes. And in God's eyes, human might and power is a nothing. Do you see what I'm saying? David's not only a man after God's own heart, David has eyes like God has. <laughs> He sees things as God sees things. Now, my own view is that this is the sense that that in this sense, David foreshadows his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For when Jesus came into the world, he came to a situation where Jews wanted a military son of David. You remember that. They wanted someone to conquer Romans and to bring in God's kingdom. Jesus saw things as his father saw them he saw that the great enemy was not beastly Roman rule. No, the real enemy was human sinfulness. The real enemy was the devil and all his cohorts. And so Jesus went out to war against them with nothing but his word and a cross. He allowed the enemies of God to take him. He allowed himself to be crucified. And in doing so, he made a public spectacle of them. In the words of Paul in Colossians 2 verse 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it that is in the cross. Did you hear that? (laughs) He's He's like his great, great ancestor. He didn't conquer with stones. No, he conquered with the wood of a cross. Friends, that pattern we see in Jesus is the pattern we see time and time again in the New Testament. For example, think about the Corinthian Christians. They are overawed by the impressive rhetorical skills of some of their teachers. They think Paul's something something of a weakling, rhetorically. But Paul sees things the way God sees them. He knows that what matters is not how well you speak, but what you say. And he knows that the rhetorical skills of humans are a prophetic match for the power of the gospel. And so he tells the Corinthians that he was determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. For the weapon that will demolish the strongholds of the enemy that really matter is the word of the gospel. Let me give you an example from my own life. I want to tell you that on one occasion in my ministry, I had to leave one location uh, because it... uh, would leave meaning, I was scared to leave it because it would mean leaving behind our children for the first time in our life. In my own mind, my children would be vulnerable without my oversight. And so in the months leading up to us leaving, I went for long walks to talk about it with God. And I remember the place where God confronted me. He brought me the words of a psalm where the psalmist says this, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands, O Lord. God help me to see Spiritual reality, to see things as he saw them. And spiritual reality was that God was calling me to this task. And if he was calling me to a task, then I could trust him. I could trust my sons to him. He could look after them. Now, I must say that there were times when I only tentatively held on to that, let me tell you. There were numerous times when things were difficult. But God continually drove me back to that reality and that he could look after my sons, our sons. He was their spiritual father. He loved them more than I loved them, and he had their good in mind, and I could trust him with this. There are countless other examples I could give you. The youthful, bold, somewhat careless faith of David reminds me of so many missionaries throughout history who have gone to the mission field confident that God would supply their needs. And I must admit that when I hear or read their stories, I look at their physical circumstances, and I think, that's impossible. Perhaps those people, though, actually see reality as God sees it. Perhaps they see the evil, one enclosing the, minds of un- the evil one closing the minds of unbelievers, and they can't wait to engage in the fray. Perhaps they are affronted by the lack of gospel preachers and simply got to get out there. So they put their confidence in God. They get on with the task. Please hear me. There's a place for caution, a place for planning, but caution and planning and counting the cost must not drive us away from trusting God for whom all things are possible. We live in a world fixated with power. As I return to where we began. But God's mechanism for bringing in the kingdom is not the powerful or the grand or the wise or the noble or the great. Let me tell you, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. It's not having tomorrow's leaders in our congregations that will make the difference. It's not having the most whiz-bang music or wonderful technology. It's not having the support of politicians or the best clergy that will cause people to come to know Christ. No, let's not be like ancient Israel. Let's not have a fetish for power and glamour. Let's see things as God sees them. And God sees the foolishness and ignominy of a cross as the means of saving the world. That is that cross outside of Jerusalem. That's the means. He sees the message of the gospel as the power of God to salvation. And he looks at simple people believing and proclaiming simple but profound truths as the way he will wage war in this world against evil. So friends, let's take this gospel into this world God's world with all the confidence that David had as he walked out onto the battlefield for our God is a living God and his gospel is the power of God to save. let's pray father we thank you for the gospel which is your power for the salvation of the world father we pray that you'd help us bear it as confidently as David approached Goliath knowing that your gospel is your power in your world to save the lost. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.